Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, selling the president's agenda. Many analysts have compared President Joe Biden's legislative plans for America to the Great Society program of President Lyndon Johnson, widely regarded as the most ambitious set of social investments in American history. With the passage of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and Joe Biden's signature social investment program, the Build Back Better agenda waiting in the on-deck circle, it appears that President Biden is on track to make that comparison very real. But will the public end up supporting these achievements and will they reward Democrats politically for them? When Democrat Terry McAuliffe lost his race for governor in Virginia, he said that the failure to pass the infrastructure bill in advance was a factor. And many Democrats have been quoted as saying that they need something to run on in 2022. That's how it works, right? Parties in power use their position, especially the position of the president, to sell their ideas to the public, and then they reap the rewards by touting their achievements. But our guest today says, hold on a minute. Maybe we've been thinking about this all wrong. Dr. George Edwards has analyzed hundreds of public opinion polls and finds that actually presidents are usually unsuccessful at wielding the so-called bully pulpit. In fact, they're frequently unable to move public opinion at all. He suggests they have to try other things to achieve success. The degree to which President Biden can sell his agenda to the American public may be the single most important factor in the politics of America in the coming years. So will he be able to do that? Dr. George C. Edwards III is the Distinguished Professor and Jordan Chair in Presidential Studies at Texas A&M University. He's the author of On Deaf Ears, Changing Their Minds, that's with a question mark, and other notable works of political science. He's here to explain it all to us. Dr. Edwards, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks very much, I'm happy to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. and. I know that for some listeners, it can feel like we're about to go a little bit over people's heads talking about political science and polling and numbers. I promise folks, it's really a lot more basic than that. This is really the fundamental question of, does it matter in terms of selling public opinion, moving public opinion to be the president of the United States? So maybe you can just walk us through the traditional view. It was Teddy Roosevelt, I believe, who coined the term the bully pulpit. And it's sort of long been the view that presidents have substantial powers to change public opinion. Is that right? It has been the view. And it becomes a narrative. For example, let's take Ronald Reagan, the great communicator. And of course, he was very effective in giving speeches. There's no question about it. And of course, being an actor didn't hurt at all in that regard. So he could give a good speech. He could make his points uh, to people who were listening. He, he, he make, made him convincingly to many people. But what we found was that if we looked at the issues that Ronald Reagan was promoting, such as big increases in defense expenditures, for example, or deregulation uh, of the economy, or uh, weakening environmental protection regulations. Uh, the public did not follow. In fact, they went in the opposite direction. Now that's not unusual. It's not, I'm not, I'm not picking on Ronald Reagan here. That's what we should have expected once we look at the data. So he wasn't able to move the public. And then we can just move up to another, the great explainer, Bill Clinton. 
known as the great explainer. So we take a Democrat and uh, same problem. So Bill Clinton in 1993 says, I've got a health care plan. And this is the cornerstone of my administration. And we need to pass a health care plan. So he does his very best to pass that. He talks about it a lot. And what happens? Well, public opinion moves in exactly the opposite direction. It never comes to a vote in either House of Congress, even though Democrats have majorities in each House of Congress. And so it goes. And we can go right up to the president with Donald Trump, who uh, was the, the great promoter, we might say, and who came to office with vast experience at promoting himself, his brands, his hotels, his casinos, everything else under the sun. And so you might think, well, here might be an exception because this guy was in the business of self-promotion. And we can look at the major initiatives in the Trump administration, which listeners will remember because it's very recent history. So first, first he said, I want to um, offer a healthcare reform. I want a new healthcare policy. I want to get rid of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and replace it with something else. Now, the Affordable Care Act had never been very popular. But as soon as Donald Trump started trying to replace it and offer his own alternative, it became more popular than it had ever been. And his alternative never, never had the support of the American people. Well, then we can move on to the next big initiative, the tax cuts, which were passed at the end of 2017, not that long ago. Now, you might think that tax cuts are not a politician's nightmare. Because normally, if you say, I'm going to give you money, people say, thank you very much. They're, they're very pleased. Those tax cuts were never popular with American pe people, not once. They never got majority support, even plurality support with the American people. We can go on to immigration. And again, this is not the toughest case because people in principle want, want the immigration laws enforced. They want immigrants or potential immigrants to follow the laws to come in uh, in, a, in a legal fashion as a, as a general principle and the abstract. But then it, then it came Donald Trump's policies. First, we're gonna cut off immigration from some countries. We're gonna build a wall. And of course, that was probably the most famous immigration policies, building the wall. The wall never got not only majority support, but plurality support from the American public. Never, never able to do it. We can, we can look at uh, international trade, you name it. If the public didn't already support a policy before the president started advocating it, he was not able to move them in his direction. These are not exceptions to the rule. I've just given you some examples of recent presidents who uh, should have been, should have been very effective in making a case. And yet in each instance, they were not effective. And of course, there are many more, there are many more examples that we could go into uh, if, if you wish to. At any rate, so presidents come in thinking that they have, that they're very persuasive fellows because the last two years before they, they entered the Oval Office for the first time as president and sit down at the, at the resolute desk and read the little note from their predecessor, they're thinking, you know, I've done nothing but talk for two years. That's what I've been doing. That's how I got here. You know, I had a long pre-primary season. Then I had the primary season then I had the general election and I won. I'm here. I'm the guy sitting at this desk in the Oval Office. So I must be a very persuasive fellow. 
because that's how I got here, right? Well, wrong. Somebody has to win. Somebody has to get there, whether you're persuasive or not, whether people, you know, people like the candidates or someone is going to win that office. And then they then they may base their governing strategy on the sense that they can go out and move the public. Barack Obama is a perfect example, a very eloquent guy. He gives a very good speech, very smart guy, very able guy. But he was not able to move public opinion, which is why Obamacare never had the public support. It does now, but it didn't then. It didn't when he was president when he needed it. Um, <clears throat> so they think that they can govern in that way. Uh, and I'll give you a really good example. The greatest politician of the 20th century is Franklin Roosevelt, FDR, won the presidency four times. That's pretty good. And um, he was reelected to his second term in 1936 and his biggest electoral victory ever. So at the height of his power, so early 1937, he's at the height of his power. He's just had fantastic political success. And he thinks, well, you know, I, I, I'm really a very persuasive fellow. So I'm really irritated at the Supreme Court. So I'm going to have what we call the court packing bill. So I don't need to consult with a lot of people. I'm just going to do it because I'm so good. And so he does. He does this. He proposes uh, a means of packing the Supreme Court by adding members for every member over 70 years, et cetera. So he wanted to put more uh, members on the Supreme Court who would support New Deal policies. We can understand his goal. But what really happened to this greatest politician in the 20th century is overreach. So he had a political disaster. So what happened was the beginning of the conservative coalition, which really dominated politics for decades to come. And it was basically the end of the New Deal. At the height of his power, I want to emphasize again, at the height of his power, the greatest politician of the 20th century was not able to move the public. And if we think just a little bit later, we're facing the greatest crisis of the 20th century, which is World War II. And FDR, FDR sees it coming and he's trying to prepare the country for war. And so he makes many speeches and, and fireside chats, et cetera, trying to get the country used to the idea that we need to prepare for war. And just to give you one example, he did get a draft passed. So we drafted people, but for a very short time, for, for a year. And so in 1941, in the middle of 1941, Congress is reconsidering, the, is considering the extension of the draft. And it passes, and, and he's got big majorities, big Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress. That's not an issue. Now, I, I like to emphasize this is the middle of 1941. All right. We know what happened later in 1941, right? And the draft passed by one vote. We almost disbanded the army. But that's how difficult it was for Roosevelt to. Uh, to move the public, even in this great crisis. And slowly the public did move as the headlines day after day after day show what was happening in Europe. And of course, but what it really took was the Japanese attack. Once the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, of course, the game changed completely. And it wasn't Roosevelt who convinced people we were going to war. It was the Japanese who convinced. 
people. Well, I'm so glad you bring up the historical examples because the first question that kind of occurred to me is, has the situation changed? I called back to Teddy Roosevelt a, a couple of minutes ago, and it did feel like at the time the president really could command a, a powerful audience, almost a captive audience. Obviously, we had a very different media landscape at the time. And it certainly feels in our historical memories for anyone who studied American history or political science, that you look back to some of these examples, the fireside chats, the Lend-Lease program, you know, FDR getting on the radio and saying, hey, look, if your neighbor has a fire, you give them the ladder, you ask questions later. And we remember those in our collective memories as, oh, that was the catalyst. That's what changed American public opinion. We think of JFK and the moonshot. And an even more recent example, we saw, we saw John McCain in the 2000 campaign when in, in the midst of the Republican primary talk incessantly about campaign finance reform. And polls showed this was an issue that the public could not care less about, rated something like 25th on the, on the <laughs> list of most important issues. By the time he was done with his campaign and lost to George W. Bush, he had elevated that issue to third on voter concerns. And so we kind of look back and we tell ourselves the story, huh, it seems like these prominent American leaders had something to do with it. But, but what you're saying essentially is, no, that's a little bit of an illusion. What really happened was that the news changed, world circumstances changed, and the, the media onslaught on circumstances is what moved public opinion. It, it's only a later retrofitting of what happened that accounts for us thinking it was a president who did that. That's right. Normally, the agenda is set uh, by the world. What's happening? If there's if there's bad times, the media is going to be writing about it. If there's a war in Europe, the media is going to be writing about it. Now, it is the case that if presidents uh, presidents get more space in the news hole than anyone else, and President Trump was brilliant at dominating the news. But so he got plenty of news, plenty of news coverage, and he could make an issue. He could get it on what we'll call the media agenda. He, he could get some, even if he said, I'm, I'm really irritated at these people taking a kneel before NF game, NFL games, right? And so all of a sudden that becomes more of an issue than it otherwise might be to take something that I don't think is really at the core of American politics or, or public policy. So presidents, presidents can do that, but can they change people's minds, particularly on issues on which that have been around, that have, that people have developed opinions, uh, race relations, for example, is, 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 is a very old issue and people have opinions about, about that. Um, people have opinions gen about generally about war and peace. They have opinions about healthcare. They have opinions, and 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 presidents find it very difficult to change people's opinions. They can they can alter what people are thinking about because they put something on the agenda, and then if they do it in a dramatic way, as President Trump frequently did, um, then there'll be coverage, and so people will be thinking about what the president was discussing, whereas they wouldn't have otherwise be thinking about. It. But that's not the same as changing their minds about, about the issues. And we don't have, of course, public opinion data back to uh, George Washington, of course, so we can't say anything definitive. What we can say is that the American people are not peculiarly deferential. 
So mm-hmm. if there was ever a president to whom the public would be deferential, it would be George Washington. Right. The father of our country. Father of our country, extraordinary prestige, particularly because he gave up power. He gave up power after as commander in chief. Right. And we won a great victory. We created a nation. He was the, <clears throat> the chairman of the Constitutional Convention, president of the Constitutional Convention, et cetera. So, so you can't have more prestige than George Washington. Yet, <clears throat> yet there was no hesitation to criticize George Washington in Congress and in the newspapers. Uh, and Jefferson even began newspapers uh, to criticize George Washington. That was the idea. And all kinds of claims were made about George Washington, that he wanted to be the king, that he would never give up power, et cetera, which is all nonsense. I mean, it's complete fabrication. But nevertheless, there was no hesitation, no deference. And we still aren't deferential. We have never been a deferential people. So it's not a people. Well, we we are not people. I'll follow the leader because he's the leader. Now, I might follow someone who I already trust and and whom I have great confidence. And if he tells me something about a foreign policy issue and I know nothing about it, all right, I'm willing to, I'm more likely to listen to him than the opposition party uh, because I don't have any confidence in them. That's a little bit different, but but we are not a deferential uh, people and and, and the human brain is not wired to change its minds easily rapidly. We are all wired to maintain the status quo of our, of our own views. And so we have, we have some cognitive issues that every human shares, every single human shares this. And that is when new information comes out, we challenge it if it isn't consistent with our views. If it's consistent with our views, then we let it in, it reinforces our views. If it challenges our views, we tend to dismiss it or we argue against it. And that's just the way human beings are wired. And that makes it very difficult for anyone, including presidents, to change to change public opinion. So presidents could tap into confirmation bias. They could basically say to the public, hey, you hand me your watch. I'll tell you the time and you'll say thank you. They can do that kind of a thing. They can maybe tweak a little bit or say, hey, you already agree with me on this. And here's something that's pretty much the same. Maybe you maybe you agree with me on this yes, if you haven't heard yes. of it before. But it's not like they're going to take someone who prefers Coke and say, no, 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 you prefer Pepsi. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's sort of, it, it's intuitive when you say it that way. It, it makes total sense given everything we know about how people think and and biases, cognitive biases, behavioral economics, all of these, all of these fields of study, everything you say makes sense. And yet, and yet, it still seems to fly in the face of received political wisdom. And any one of us can turn on the Sunday shows and listen to pundits. I guess I should go lightly on that term since I I qualify (laughs) to some extent. But you can listen to pundits say, hey, presidents wield the bully pulpit. They're going to be able to go out on the stump and take their case to the American people, and it's going to work. They have home field advantage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I do want to ask a little bit about the extent to which opposition to what a president wants to achieve is just kind of built in. It's the way people think. It's what, what some political scientists call thermostatic, right? It's like, it's like Newton's third law. 
every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So President Biden says X and Republicans are going to amp up their opposition to it and say why. Is, is that what's going on? Is it, is it thermostatic? Is it just something built in? Or is the kind of difficulty that presidents have moving public opinion due to lobbying, due to organized advocacy in opposition? And I think, of course, of the example that you raised of President Clinton and his healthcare initiative, or even more recently, President George W. Bush and his move to privatize Social Security in 2005. He famously said, I have lots of political capital, I'm going to spend it. And then there was organized, very clever opposition, and that agenda was dead within a year. So which is it? Is it, is it kind of endemic to what we are and, and how we think as people? Or is this an engineered set of sand in the gears of what presidents want to accomplish? Oh, that's, that's a great question. And the answer is, it's both. And so let me try to explain. First of all, it is the case that as soon as a president takes office, there's, there, there's pushback uh, by some people. So, so Democratic presidents always give people more liberal policies than, than the average person wants. And Republicans always give them more conservative policies than the average person wants. So right away, you got, you got, you got, you got some pushback. Um, it is also the case, as, uh, as you indicated, that particularly in polarized times, and we are in highly, highly, highly polarized times right now, that there is pushback because we just hate the opposition. Whatever, whoever the opposition is, it doesn't matter. We hate them. We just don't dislike them or disagree with them, which is what, as a healthy democracy, you have to have that. I mean, that, that, that's required, but we hate them. And so if they're for it, we must be against it because they're bad people. They're bad people. They want to ruin the country, whatever. So we must be against them. And so there's a lot of that that goes on. So there's a lot of pushback. And, and we can see this. Um, there are, uh, President uh, Trump has a, a, had and still has to a large degree, I think, a, a firm base, a very loyal base. And in the White House, they were perfectly aware and they thought that, and apparently the president thought as well, that they will believe whatever the president tells them. And I think that was largely correct. They would. And we saw a movement. We saw a movement uh, of some Republicans became less supportive of a traditional conservative institution like the FBI. When the president starts criticizing the FBI because of the, we'll call it the Russia investigation, um, a good number of Republicans had less confidence all of a sudden in the FBI. Well, two thirds um, of Republicans tell pollsters that they believe that the 2020 election was rigged, even yes, though it sort yes, of conclusively yeah. proved that it wasn't. A so, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he can move. Absolutely. He can move that segment. No. Yeah. Doubt. Yeah. So, so they are they they are responsible because they're already pre predisposed uh, to support him and to support his policies, and you know they don't have long held views about the 2020 election because it only occurred, you know, a year ago. So, so they, they, they didn't know. And so they are predisposed. But on the other hand, Democrats and many others are predisposed to oppose whatever Trump says. They hate him. They don't like him. And so, 
So they might move in the opposite direction. Uh, and you saw some of that on, on the wall where, where Democrats might have supported a wall from a, a Democratic president, but as soon as Trump is for it, they're opposed to it. They don't want anything to do with what this guy stands for and his, his entire value system and everything else that they don't like. So the Democrats don't like him. So, so you have some of that. And that's always, that's always an issue these days. And it's becoming more and more significant. Now, you also ask, well, is it also clever lobbying? Now, and the, the example that you raised was George W. Bush in his effort to change the financing of Social Security right after he was reelected in 2000, after his 2004 reelection. Now, that is a very interesting example of president's attempts to move public opinion, because I would say it was the most uh, organized and sustained effort to change uh, public opinion or to obtain support for a in the history of democracy. Mm. I mean, this was an extraordinary effort. The president went all over the country, had many, many town meetings with supportive audiences. So it always looked good, you know, uh, and you could follow on the website where the president uh, on the Treasury Department was website where the president was going and where other uh, prominent officials in the administration was going. They were making many, many, many speeches. They're making a very sustained effort. And there's nothing wrong with making a sustained effort. That's not a criticism. I'm just really saying they made an effort to sell a policy. And President George W. wishes, I I've got political capital, as you indicated, and I want to be bold. And this is a big this is a big deal because this is our most expensive policy. So in one one way, you could say it's our biggest policy and it clearly serves tens of millions of people. So I want to do something about this. Now, now, the, the uh, there, there's something that that is also common to human beings. And you mentioned behavioral economics a moment ago. And one of the things we know is loss aversion. So people are very reluctant to change when it looks like they might lose something, when they might have risk. They don't want, they don't like incurring risk. Most people don't like incurring risk. So it's an obstacle they have to overcome. And that's, that's, that's difficult. So opponents of the president in this, on, on this issue were able to use that effectively. And um, I, we saw the same thing with President Trump and, and trying to change Obamacare. All right, we didn't particularly like Obamacare beforehand, but now the president wants to take it away, you know? Oh my God, no, you know, taking away benefits, that's not good. So loss aversion kicks in and virtually overnight, virtually overnight, support for Obamacare goes up. Uh, that's That uh, we cannot attribute to uh, persuasion per se, we can attribute it to the way human beings are wired. So, so there's a lot going on here. It's not, it's, it, it, I, I'd like to make it really, really simple and say there's one thing, it's one thing you have to know, that's all you have to know, and, and you got it, but it's not, it's not that simple. But the bottom line is you can't govern on the expectation that you'll be able to move the public reliably. Well, I mean, th your explanation, even though it's nuanced, there's some gray, it's a little bit of both, it actually really resonates with me. I was a congressional staffer during the George W. Bush privatization initiative, and I'm a Democrat. So I was sitting in rooms with that 
at the time House Speaker and now current House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was organizing. Well, I guess at the time she was the minority leader. This was pre-2006 election. And all of us were in the room and we were going over, here's the messaging that we're going to have. What did it do? There, it was it was engineered in the sense that, you know, we were putting together an advocacy effort to oppose the president, but it was tapping into loss aversion, risk aversion. What was our tagline? This is a risky scheme from George W. Bush. It's putting your retirement at risk. So as you say, it really was a little bit of both. It was engineered, but it was tapping into baseline human sensibilities, cognition, the way we all think and approach political problems. So given that, that really does set us up for, I teased at the top of the show that this might be the most consequential question in American politics. And I'm not just whistling Dixie here. I, I really think it is because President Joe Biden's ability to sell the benefits of what he's accomplished legislatively, that kind of feels like the whole ball game. That's what Democrats are banking on to give them a fighting chance and, you know, go against history in 2022. And that would largely be the contrast that you would see in a re-election campaign in 2024. This seems to be the whole ball of wax for the next few years. So given everything that you've found in your research and, and this discussion we've had here, is it really futile for President Biden to try to sell the merits of his agenda to move public opinion on this? Is he just, does he just have to wait eight years until Republicans try and take it away and loss aversion kicks in? Or is there something he can do to be effective? Well, he's 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 clearly constrained by the factors that, that that we're talking about. I think if the Democrats are like if the Democrats are going to be successful, and we don't know, it's premature to talk about that definitively, of course. But but it's going to be things that happen in the real world. Right now, there is there there is a, a paradox where the economy is really doing pretty well. And we just had huge job increase increases over the last few months, including, and particularly the last month, I think it was 561,000 new jobs. Workers' pay is up very nicely. Yeah, like 5% uh, year over year. Yeah, yeah, and the stock market is at an all-time high. Right. So corporations are not hurting, you know, uh, and workers are are getting pay raises, um, but <clears throat> there's still people feel that the economy is not good. And my my point is, we got abstract, or we we got broad generalities which are accurate, which we can make. But people go to the gas pump, and they say, "Well, gas is up a lot." a lot from a year ago when there was no demand. So gas was fairly cheap. Now there's a lot of demand all of a sudden and you can't increase the supply that rapidly. So naturally the price of gasoline goes up. That's largely beyond the president's control. So that's the context in which, in which he's operating. Apparently we can't get enough truck drivers. We, have, we, we all know about supply chain problems, which are largely beyond the president's control. He certainly didn't cause those problems in the first place. And um, and he doesn't have a lot of leverage just to pull. If he would just pull them, you know, uh, that, that that and do the right thing, press the buttons, and all of a sudden we wouldn't have supply chain problems. Supply chain problems lead to inflation. 
and people see see that you know uh, daily. So there are these that there are concerns. So there's things that people see every day in their lives, and there's the broader question about the economy, which we can measure, you know, as a whole. And um, it's very difficult for the president to say, hey, we're doing great. We're doing great when people are irritated by things at the gas pump, you know, by the price. And so it's hard to overcome that because people can easily understand the price of gasoline. I mean, they can understand what they're paying at the pump. This is my least favorite political dynamic because when I was on a Senate campaign in 2010, we used to talk about this internally. It was a a similar kind of economic dynamic, right? The economy is taking off, recovering from the Great Recession, but people are still hurting, blah, blah, blah. And we talked about it as we had to put our politician in in the position of saying to voters, who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes? And it's like, that's that's not a winning proposition. No, no, it's, it's it's, it's very difficult. And so, again, it just shows how difficult it is for presidents, you know, to move public opinion. And of course, there are other there are other problems that the Demo- I mean, the president Biden faces. I mean, it was messy in Afghanistan and um, the kinds of um, the kinds of visuals and visuals are very important and, and, and politics and they're very important in the media. Uh, we're, we're not good. One could say in the abstract. This was an amazingly successful evacuation. We got so many people out of there so rapidly, and you never evacu- you never leave a war cleanly, unless you unless it's unconditional surrender and you dominate the country, which we didn't want to do, uh, and the American people didn't want to do. Nevertheless, that's the visual that becomes a narrative. Similarly, if there are crowds at the border and, and the president didn't say, "Hey, please." You know, let's have crowds at the border trying trying to get in. And actually, the Biden administration is very tough about sending people back to Haiti, et cetera. But nevertheless, those visuals are difficult to overcome. So people can relate, or at least they think they can relate to visuals because they can see it. They sort of understand, oh, there's a crowd, there's a lot of people, it's messy, uh, there's violence, whatever. That's bad. I don't like that. I don't like the price of gas. And so They've got these little bits and pieces, if you will, of information, which they are pretty comfortable thinking that they understand, which they may not really understand what it all means. But but nevertheless, they're comfortable thinking about that. And then you got the broader the broader issue. So it's 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 and there's as you know, the famous Saturday Night Live character, Emily Littell, you say there's always something, you know, there's always something. And, and I've just outlined some of those problems that Democrats will have to overcome and the president, President Biden will have to overcome. Now, if supply chain problems end, you know, if that if that gets worked out, if the supply of gas uh, comes in line with the demand for gas, gasoline, um, and that will lower the price some, that will be that will be a great advantage for the Democrats. Now, when and how that's going to happen, I cannot tell you. I wish I could. But I can't. I don't know anyone who can, but I can't. They don't uh, just put that in the water in Texas that you know what the future of the oil market's going to be. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I'd be a lot wealthier if, 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 if I did know all that. At any rate, at any rate, uh, so there's a context there for, for attempting to persuade uh, the public. And so you have to deal with that context. 
And um, of course, there are lots and lots of people who have a stake in public relations. There's lots of people in the communications field, the public relations field, the speech writers, et cetera. And they have a great stake in arguing, hey, we can do this. You know, just turn to us, give us some money, and we'll do it. And they can do some things very, very well. But but to, to infer that therefore they're going to be successful is wrong. That's a mistake. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how eloquent the speech. Uh, or how clever, you know, you, you got to deal with facts on the ground. And well, sometimes those facts are messy. I mean, that really connects to something that I've long complained is that there's a subset of Democrats, particularly Democrats, I think Republicans too, but, you know, I know my own side a little bit better, yeah. that subscribes to the idea that there are magic words. And look, words matter, you know, good yeah. speeches matter. I, I believe in all that, but I don't think there's a magic combination of syllables that will suddenly make people say, oh, I've been wrong all along. I mean, part of what you're speaking to, I think, is the efficacy of political campaigns, which, as I understand it, is an open question in political science. Do campaigns matter? Because ultimately, if the president of the United States, the most powerful person in the world, the leader of the free world it used to be, and the person with the biggest platform. Certainly that was true of Donald Trump. It's a little less true of Joe Biden. With the biggest platform for communication in the world, if what you're saying is that with all of that exposure, what a president can do to move public opinion is very limited, then it sort of calls into question the enterprise of moving public opinion for a political campaign, let's say for someone running for Congress or or for governor, to what degree do you think, and have you looked in your own research at the question of, can political campaigns move public opinion? I mean, getting someone to vote in a certain direction or show up to vote is a form of moving public opinion. That's a classic question and a, and a, and a really good one. Most of, the, most of the research has concluded that campaigns change very few minds very few minds. An effective campaign finds the people who already agrees with the candidate, who wants to support the candidate and gets them to the polls. That's the emphasis. So it's on mobilization. It's not on persuasion. And I think I think effective politicos know that, and that's the emphasis of the campaign. So in Georgia, with the great success that the Democrats had in Georgia in 2020, and the two Senate elections and the presidential election, it was getting people to the polls. That's the issue. And I think that that's one reason uh, that uh, I must say that that some Republicans have been uh, supportive of efforts to make it a little bit more difficult to vote because they think that that is going to that is going to suppress Democratic vote. Now, people can call in and complain about that last statement of mine. I've tried to be nonpartisan. So but anyhow, I think that that is certainly a motivation. at any rate, so it's more mobilization than persuasion. And campaigns really don't persuade very many people. Occasionally, there's, there, there, there may be an exception, uh, and, a, and, and it, there might be just a great commercial, but they're, they're very rare, very rare. Uh, occasionally, a great line, you know, that helps summarize that, the, the issues in that particular campaign. But it's 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 very unusual, and so um, 
I, 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 I'm sorry to say to all, all those people who worked so hard at campaigns, you know, that, that, that some of the, the most highly visible parts really aren't that important. And the ground, the ground game is likely to be more, more important. Of course, you got to raise money. You got to have enough people to have an, uh, enough money to have an effective ground game. You got to, you got to have commercials just to counter the other side's commercials. And uh, by the way, I would add, I, I would add something else that we, we haven't mentioned, and that is, it's, it's important whether it's in the campaign or whether it's in uh, the presidency. There's other reasons to go public, to take your case to the public, other than trying to persuade people. Because you, you, you need to mobilize your own supporters. We we're talking about mobilization. You know, you need to give them a reason to get activated. And that's very, very important. So speaking to converted is not necessarily a bad thing. They're already converted, right? Preachers uh, like do it every Sunday. Yeah, yeah, precisely, precisely. So you're speaking to the converted, but you want to get them activated. You want to get them enthusiastic. And that's really key. And sometimes you want to get them to the polls, right? And there's another reason as well that you might go public. And again, it's it's largely speaking to converted, but you're speaking to converted for a different reason here. And that is to show that when you have support, when something is popular, you want to show it. So if President Biden goes to Scranton, Pennsylvania to talk about infrastructure spending, uh, he doesn't really need to, 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 to convince people about that. What he wants to show is this is really a popular bill. People in America really like this bill. And so when you're thinking about voting about this bill, please remember, these people really like this. They already like it. I don't have to convince them to like it. And so that's that's and solidifying the core and illustrating, uh, demonstrating that core support is really crucial in politics. You know, you're really reminding me, I took a persuasion course in grad school and my professor was great on acronyms, which is very smart because that's a great way to remember things. The big one, when it came to persuading people, his acronym was CARD. There's four ways of, of affecting people's mindset. C is conversion, A, activation, R, reinforcement, and D, deactivation. And the upshot of, of what I'm hearing from this whole discussion, which is absolutely fascinating, by the way, is don't bank on C. C, conversion, just doesn't happen that often. And if you think about it in your own life, how often do you convert someone? I mean, like really someone who's not like your spouse, even then, probably not your spouse. How often do you convert <laughs> someone who's like, they're a one on something and after they talk to you, they're a 10? Not very often. What you can do, and what I hear you saying presidents can do, is some activation, some reinforcement of pre-existing thinking, and a little bit of diffusing, some deactivation, trying to take a little bit of the edge off of the opposition. Other than that, it's not a heck of a lot, and it's not nearly what we usually associate with the bully pulpit and the massive communications power of the presidency. I would love to continue this discussion for another two hours. It, like I said, it's absolutely fascinating. I hope people will check out these books. Even if you're not a political scientist, I think that there's a lot to learn from them. The books that we've highlighted today are On Deaf Ears, which is a classic, and Changing Their Minds, the most recent one from Professor George C. Edwards III, the Distinguished Professor and Jordan Chair in Presidential Studies at Texas A&M. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. 